Well, this morning we're in Ephesians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 14 to 21, which is a prayer of the Apostle Paul. And he actually is praying for, for us. Um, and uh, he's praying about change for us. You know, it's, I found for me at least it's very hard to do what I really want to do. And the question is, why is it so hard to do what you want to do? So, for example, I, I was going to get into shape, and so I joined Planet Fitness. Ten bucks a month, great deal, right? And so uh, the first week I went four times. That was my goal. That's pretty good. Um, next week I think I went four times, and then slowly I was going less and less and less. And when I would go, I, I hated it. I mean, I just hated it. And so I'd go to one machine and kind of do the things you're supposed to do. Then it would kind of hurt, so I quit. And I'd go to the next machine, and it didn't feel comfortable, so I'd quit, go to the next machine. And then I'd get on the treadmill, and I'd want to run 30 minutes, and I might do half that. Because if you ever hear that you only have one day to live, spend it on a treadmill. It will seem like eternity. And, um, and so uh, it was terrible. And so soon I just stopped going. I really wanted to get in shape. I just didn't want to work out. Another time, I decided I was going to learn Spanish. And so if you ever tried this, you get Rosetta Stone. And it's a, it's a great program, Duolingo, either one of those. And it's, it's fun. Uh, all you have to do to learn Spanish, 30 minutes a day, and you can learn it. First day, 30 minutes. I'm nailing it. I'm having a good time. I go through the first week. I'm, I'm doing okay. And pretty soon, my schedule gets to be too busy. And I know just un poquito Spanish, you know. I know how to say, donde está el baño? And that's about it. Uh, I uh, don't know Spanish at all. I really wanted to know Spanish. I just didn't want to do the work of learning Spanish. Or you may have had that experience with a diet. You know, it's, diet industry is proof that it's hard to do what you want to do. We're paying an industry $40 billion, $40 billion to help us not to eat. That is absolutely insane, right? We're paying them, paying them money to, more money for them than we would actually spend on food. And, um, and so the diet industry, so you maybe tried this. So you start off in the morning, you get your bowl of oatmeal because that's, you know, high protein, low cal. You do really well. You go to lunch, you have your salad with that low-fat dressing, which is another way of saying tasteless, and um, you eat your salad, and then you come home for dinner, and you have the broiled chicken, but you can't have butter on it, so it's just like that piece of rubber, and, uh, and you have your kale on the side because that's what healthy people eat. And to reward yourself, you kind of eat an Oreo. And... Um, <laughs> And then before you go to bed, you have that hunger pain. You go, you know, I've been pretty good today, so you eat another Oreo, and, and soon the bag's gone, right? You polish off the whole bag, and then there goes that diet. Or, or maybe as parents, your, your kid's Halloween candy, you know, it's, uh, it's all gone. You just sampled, right? You just sampled, and then the kids get up in the morning and go, what happened? I don't know, you know, goblins. Um, and, uh, and we've all tried. It, it, we find that we are, are powerless to change. And... And that's not just true about health and diet and languages, books, those sorts of things. It's true about the Christian life. Uh, for many people, uh, and many people in church, they feel like frustrated, fatigued failures because they're approaching the Christian life like a dieter. It's, it's what not to do. What do I have to do? You, find a, you want to find a new plan for sin management, a new plan for discipline. And, and it works well for a while. I mean, you're doing it. You're getting up. You're reading the Bible. You're praying, whatever it might be. Uh, but pretty soon you find yourself falling apart and you're binging on the Oreos. And, uh, 
And at that point, uh, you come to church, and to make matters worse, you come to church, and you're, you're feeling like a failure, and you look around, and, and everybody else seems to have it together. Now, I know your slogan, you know, we're a church, you know, we don't have it all together, and we don't pretend like we have it all together. I get that, but when I look around the room, you look very together. And, and so you walk in the room, and everybody seems to have it together but you. And you begin to think, why is this Christian life working for everyone but me? What is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? And you begin to, to sort of give up. You might still come to church. You might still go through the motions. But you just kind of look and go, you know, maybe I'm just one of those this doesn't work for. I'm just going to be, you know, you know, the way things are is the way things are. And then we come and we read about the Apostle Paul's prayer here. Maybe the problem isn't you. Maybe the problem is the way we're approaching this. What if living the Christian life was less like a diet and more like a feast? What if when Jesus invites you to grow, it's less like a new discipline plan, a new rigor and instead, it's an invitation to a Thanksgiving dinner. In this passage, the Apostle Paul invites us to experience the power of God in our lives. Doesn't that sound great? Don't you want God's power in your life? I mean, that to me, that just sounds fantastic. So, but the question is, how do you go about experiencing God's power in your life? And Paul says here, this good news, the way we experience God's power is, is not simply by getting more discipline. You know, my, my administrative assistant, anytime I have to do something hard, she tells me, suck it up, buttercup. You know, that's how she encourages me. And, um, and we think that's what the Christian life is, suck it up, buttercup. But what if it's not suck it up, buttercup? What if it's come to the table and feast? Come to the table and enjoy Come to the table and, and, and find that which is really filling and satisfying. So that's what Paul's prayer for us is in this passage. So Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 21, uh, this is God's word. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you may be rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us as we look at this. Father, we come to you today and we hear your word and we know your word is true, but we also know, even as it reveals truth to us, that we need you to open our hearts to receive it. So we pray, Holy Spirit, help me to speak clearly uh, in a way that would be helpful, uh, truthfully, in a way that is true to your word, and apply it to our hearts that we may follow after you in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that we see in this passage is that willpower, when it comes to life change, willpower alone is powerless. You cannot change 
simply through willpower. Now, for the previous two and a half chapters of this book, we're halfway through Ephesians at this point. The previous two and a half chapters, the Apostle Paul has been celebrating the grace of God. He's been praising God for the remarkable work that God has done, his incredible kindness. He says that God, in an act of pure grace, before the world was ever even formed, set his love upon us as his people and, 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 and delighted in us. Even, even though we deserved his anger, even though we were living according to the pattern of this world, uh, out of love, God chose to save us and call us to be his own. Furthermore, he took people who were once hostile to him and, frankly, hostile to one another, uh, and he brings us together into a new humanity. He's building a new humanity of people from every race, every ethnic group, every language, and he's uniting them to the family of God. And as Paul reflects on all of this that he's just taught us in the first two and a half chapters, he is, he is so overcome by the grace of God that he falls to his knees in this effusive praise. He's astonished at what God has done for us. In other words, all that theology, the first two and a half chapters, is not just dry theology. It is, it is something that, that amazes him about God's grace. And so when you begin to grasp what God has done for us, even to the slightest degree, it causes us to be amazed and astonished, and it causes us to worship. And so Paul prays, and he prays to the Father, but he prays this Trinitarian prayer. Notice this. If you look at the passage, he prays to the Father, but he prays that we might be, have all the fullness of Christ. That's the second person of the Trinity. And he prays for the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. All three persons of the Trinity are involved. So the, and the ultimate result of this Trinitarian prayer is found in verse 17. He says that you may be rooted and grounded in love. So to sum it all up, Paul is praying for his readers. He's praying that they will experience the strength and the power of God by coming to know the magnitude of the love of God in Christ. So here is the key to the Christian life. And not just the key to the Christian life, here is the key to life itself. It's found in grasping, as Paul says, the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God for you as in Christ Jesus. So what Paul says, what we need most to experience the power of God is to know about the grace of God. Now know what some of you are thinking. Grace, 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 grace. When are you going to tell us what to do? You know, we, we, we need, you know, grace is great. I mean, that's fantastic. But, you know, we need to start doing the things we're supposed to do. And, and that's what I need help with. Tell me what to do. Particularly, there are some of you who you look at your life and, and you're thinking, I'm doing pretty well. And so what I need the pastor to do is tell all these other people out here, they need to get it together. Enough of this mushy love stuff. Come on now, just do it, right? That's the theology, Nike theology. The slogan of Nike is, just do it. And so how hard is this? Thou shalt not lie, just do it, right? Do not lust, just do it. Be moral, just do it. Tithe, just do it. Worship, just do it. Pray, just do it. I mean, come on, it's not complicated. Just do it. And, and we've reduced uh, the theology of the Bible down to, to Nike theology. Well, that was my approach uh, to my own life for a long time, even for a long time after I was a pastor. I would struggle, still struggle, with per, uh, particular besetting sins, certain things, and I, I would look at that and I'd go, this is wrong. 
And I go before God and I confess and I say, Lord, this is wrong. This is simple. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. And I promise you I will never, ever do that again. And I make a vow. Anybody here done that? You know, parents ever yelled at your kids and said, I will never, ever do that again. Or, or whatever it might be. Well, I'd make the vow and I do, I do well for a time. And then all of a sudden I do it again. I go, ah, oh, I just did it again. And I say, oh, Lord, I, re- I mean it this time. I, I really, really am sorry. I really do mean it. And I'm not going to do that ever again. And I do it again. And then, I, and then so what would happen repeatedly over and over again, and, I, and I'd just, just feel like I'm a failure. I can't do it. And, and I'd feel like God was looking down at me, and here's what God saw when he looked at me. L, big loser on the forehead, right? Why can't you just get your act together? Okay, I know you love me, God, but I mean, God's up there just going, oh, man, there's one in every crowd. There's one in every crowd. Here you are. You know, the person who can't quite do it. And, um, and so uh, I'd feel like a failure. And even worse, uh, that perpetual feeling of, of feeling like a failure, you also, if you're a pastor, you feel like you're an imposter. And some of you feel that way today. You're coming into church and you go, man, if everybody knew what I was like, I'm, I am such a fake such a fake. Well, why is the Christian life working for many? Why do we find ourselves either like failures or there's another response, frankly. Some of you look and you got all the rules down and you're doing them pretty well and you're going, what is wrong with these people, Mark? I don't know, you know. And what happens is at least the self-righteous arrogance because you feel like you're doing pretty well. Here's some bad news for you. If you feel like you're keeping the law pretty well, you don't know the law of God. If you really think you're measuring up, you're short-cutting it somewhere. You've reduced the law down to a bar you can jump, and you're patting yourself on the back. You've you reduced the high bar down to three feet and jumped over and said, man, I'm ready for the Olympics. You know? uh, and, but, but if you really look at the fullness of the law of God, you begin to realize you can't measure up. Well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is not that I wasn't trying hard enough. The problem is not that you aren't trying hard enough. The problem is if you focus on sin, you try to manage your sin and behavior, it will lead you to greater slavery. It will not lead you to freedom. We don't have time to look at it, but if you look at Romans chapter 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul talks about at the law of God, all those rules about things you're supposed to do, which are good, he says if you focus on that and you use the law of God to cause you to become more like Christ, it's actually going to cause you to sin more, not less. It's going to stir up more sinfulness, not less sinfulness. It it actually has the opposite effect of what you're wanting to do. Uh, And so, so you know, again, it's not that the commands of the Bible are bad. The commands of the Bible are good. It's God's law. Uh, And we ought to obey them. They describe for us what a beautiful life looks like. But the problem is with the law of God is the law of God tells you what to do, but it doesn't give you any power to do it at all. It it says, here's what you ought to do, but it doesn't lift a finger to help. The law of God is kind of like a bystander who watches when you've been hit by a car. Say you've been hit by a car, you're in the middle of the street, both your legs are broken, you're bloody, the traffic's heavy, and the law of God is there on the sideline and says, Hey, buddy, you ought to get out of the road before you get hit again. Thank you for the help, right? It tells you what you ought to do, but it doesn't help you do it. And and so the law of God is powerless to bring about life change. 
And so, because ultimately the law of God uh, is not our problem. Our problem is not knowing what to do. Our problem is not one of knowledge. Our ultimate problem is not even one of the will. Our ultimate problem is one of the heart. There's an early American pastor named Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards uh, said that, says that we will always do whatever our greatest inclination at the moment is. In other words, you have several desires, several inclinations, but you will always do what it is you want to do most at that particular moment. And so this whole issue of free will, do we have free will? Edward says, you are always free to do what you want to do. In fact, he takes it even a step further, because not only are you free to do what you want to do, you can only do what you want to do. You will always, every situation, do whatever it is you want most to do in that situation. Uh, modern psychology has something very similar idea. It's called the approach avoidance conflict. Uh, approach avoidance is this. Uh, it's when you desire something, but you don't want what it entails. So, for example, how many people desire to be healthy? Let me ask another question. How many of you desire to be not healthy? Who woke up this morning and says, I really want to feel miserable and watch my body fall apart? Anybody. Okay. Nobody wakes up that way, right? And so, how are you healthy? I'm going to write a, uh, a health and fitness book, and it's very simple. It's, it's got three chapters. Here, here they are. You, you might want to write this down because this is going to be a bestseller. It's, uh, uh, here, how do you be healthy? Eat right, chapter one. Exercise, chapter two. Get plenty of sleep. Do those three things, you're healthy. I mean, it's not rocket science, people. We know how to do this. We do not have a knowledge problem. What's the problem? Here's the problem. I know what it takes to get healthy, and, so, and I desire to be healthy, but I also have another desire. Here's my other desire. I like staying up late and watching Netflix, and I like anything baked, anything sugary, almost anything fried, and then throw in a steak. If I, nothing green. I mean, there's nothing green that has the remotest appeal to me whatsoever, and so I have this desire. So, so I have these two desires, Krispy Kreme donuts and health. And these two desires do not go together. And so what am I going to do? Well, I know what is good for me. And so I have a desire for health, a desire for Krispy Kreme donuts. Now, at the moment I'm making a decision, if my desire to be in good shape is stronger than my desire for the donut, then I'm going to forego the donut and I'm going to go for a run. If, on the other hand, at that moment of decision, at that moment, my desire for the donut is stronger than my desire for fitness, I'm going to eat the donuts, plural, and I'm going to lie to myself about running tomorrow, right? That's what I'm going to do. Whatever you desire most at that moment is what you're going to do. And so, so here's the problem. We're not rational. We are not rational creatures. We think if we just give people enough facts, they're going to make the right decisions every time. We rarely make decisions based on rations. Uh, we are not rational creatures. We are desiring creatures. We follow our hearts. We follow our desire. And so unless we address that, we cannot bring about change. Here's why willpower doesn't work. Willpower appears, uh, appeals to your reason, to your ration, rational side. But if you want to experience real change, you have to appeal to the heart. Willpower is powerless. So what's powerful? Well, love. Love is powerful. Love is powerful. Notice the connection between love and power in Paul's prayer. He prays in verse 16, 
that we will be, quote, strengthened with power through his spirit. So how do we experience the power of the Holy Spirit? He says, answers that, he says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He says, the more we look at Christ in faith, the more we experience the power of the Spirit in our lives. Then verse 18, he prays that we may have strength. Strength to do what? To comprehend, quote, the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. More love, more power. The more we grasp the love of God, the more we experience God's power in our lives. The more you know and love Christ, the greater you understand his grace, the more the Spirit's power is going to be unleashed. That's because grasping the love of Christ does not merely change your behavior, it changes what you want to do. It changes the heart. Uh, There's an old English hymn writer, uh, his name was William Cooper, spelled like Cowper, but it's Cooper, and he says this, he says, to see the law of Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Here's where faith comes in. Faith is believing. Faith is believing the gospel. And the gospel is this. The gospel is this, that by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection, Jesus has already won the love of the Father for us. By his death, he took the full penalty of our sins upon himself on the cross so that we can say, even as you've already said this morning, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Do you believe that? Five people believe that. That's pretty good for... Christian evangelical church. Um, um, you know, no condemnation. Now, I, I say that, you know, being facetiously, I do believe that. I, I, I preach it all the time. I read it every day, you know. But man, there are times when I don't believe that. I really think I'm still under the condemnation of God. Why? Because I'm looking at my behavior, I'm not looking at the cross. If the cross is true, If you really believe that, if you have faith that the cross is true, that's what faith is. Faith is believing Jesus died on the cross, that he paid the penalty of sin. If that is true, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, that's not the whole story. Because not only is the cross true, but it's also true that Jesus in his life fulfilled all of the law's demands, that he obeyed everywhere, that he earned the righteousness on our behalf. And so that when a person becomes a Christian, not only are their sins forgiven, but God credits to us, accounts to us, gives to us the righteousness of Christ. It is as if if you're robed in his righteousness. So when God looks at you, not only does he see you as forgiven, you have no sin against you, there's no condemnation, but he also sees you as righteous. So when the Father looks at you, Christian, here's the gospel truth. When the father looks at you, he says, wow, isn't he, isn't she beautiful, stunning in righteousness? And the more we believe that, that that is a righteousness that we did not earn, that we did not deserve, the more it changes us. Because because if I think that my standing before God is based on my merit, I'm always going to be insecure. But if I believe my standing before God is based on Christ, then I've got incredible security. And when I begin to realize I did absolutely nothing to deserve this, 
absolutely nothing, then I see how much God has loved me, that he's given me that kind of grace. When you realize God has given you his love as a gift, you realize how much he loves you, it transforms you. So to quote another uh, Puritan, Samuel Bolton said this, things impossible to others are easy to them that love. See, if you believe God loves you, then you're going to love him. And if, you're gonna, if you love him, then you are w- going to want to please him. You will do things for love you would never do for any other reason. I, I, I think of parenting. You know, if you look at a job description of a parent, you could not pay me enough to do that. I mean, you know, somebody said, I'm going to pay you to raise this child in diapers. And, uh, and you're just going to be paid to do that. I'm going, you can't afford me. I am the most expensive babysitter on the planet. I will not, I mean, there's no amount of money. However, when we had children, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be the one caring for them. I wanted to be there changing diapers. You know, when they got sick, I actually wanted to be there comforting them when they were sick. Why? Love will cause you to do things that you would never do for duty. And so what happens is, what you see is, what controls your affections controls your actions. Whatever controls your affections controls your actions. There's a psychologist at the University of Virginia, Dr. Jonathan Haidt. He, uh, he uses the illustration of a rider and an elephant. So you have the picture. You have a uh, big six-ton elephant, a little 150-pound man on top of the elephant. And the rider is controlling where the elephant goes, or so it speaks. So you think. Well, he says, think of the rider as like your rational self, and the elephant is like your emotional self. And, and so at any point, the rider can contr- direct where the elephant goes. But at some point, let's say the rider and the elephant disagree. Who wins? Let's say something scares that elephant. And, and the rider there has got the reins of the ears or however he steers his elephant. I don't even know. And, and, he's got the, and, and so the rider wants the elephant to go one way. But the elephant's scared and wants to go that way. Who wins that battle? The elephant every time. Six tons beats 150 pounds every day of the week. And so the same thing is with your will trying to control your behavior. It's like the rider trying to control the elephant. You can do it up to a point, but if you really want to see behavioral change, you've got to control the affections. You've got to affect the affections because whatever appeals, whatever controls your affections controls your actions. Just do it appeals to the rider, but it doesn't bring about change with the elephant. And so Paul says that the power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed in your life when you know that through faith, Jesus, uh, faith in Jesus, you're loved by God. And, and so the more, here's how the spirit works. Spirit and faith go together. The more we look to Christ in faith, the more power of the spirit is unleashed in our life. So what happens then when you begin to diminish what Jesus has done? When you begin to think that, that in any way your, your acceptance with God is based on your performance. When you do that, you begin to reduce the gospel and you begin to reduce the Spirit's power. You begin to short-circuit it. If you base your, God's acceptance from you on your performance, on your merit, rather than what Jesus has done for you, you're going to short-circuit the work. Because here's what's going to happen. If I believe that God's love for me is based in any way on my performance, and then I look at my performance and I do it truthfully through the lens of the law, I'm going to realize I'm never performing well enough. And because I'm never performing well enough, and if God's love for me is based on how well I'm performing, then he's never going to love me because I can't do it. 
I'm not good enough. I'm trying hard and I can't measure up. And then what's going to happen is then I'm going to resent God. Because God has a standard called the law and I can't live up to the standard. And he's this impossible tyrant. He's impossible to please. I can't live up to that. And so now I don't trust God. I don't trust his love for me. And because I don't trust love for me, I'm not going to be able to live in a way that honors him. And so what we have to do if we're going to see our lives change is be grasped and gripped by the love of God. There's a 19th century Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers, and he explains this beautifully. He said that the best way of uh, casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one and by the love of what is good to expel the love of what is evil. He calls that the expulsive power of a new affection. So he says, if you find that you're loving something that is bad, you can't just say no. You have to find something else that you love more. And, and, and it's that love, that, that what you love more, that's going to cast out that impure affection. And so, so ultimately what he's saying is the more we understand God's love for us, the free grace of the gospel, the more we grasp that and we see God's love for us, the more we're going to want to, uh, to live a life that pleases him. And here's the problem with legalism. Legalism is that idea that I'm going to look to the law of God as my way of earning God's approval. And if I do that, I'm, I'm going to become more and more a slave. Have you ever seen those you know, Chinese finger traps? You know, those like wicker things you put your, your fingers in like this. And uh, what happens when you try and pull your fingers out? They get tighter. You get stuck. And that's what legalism does to you. The more you pull, the harder you try and get out of it, the more stuck you feel. That's because you're thinking God's love for you is based on your behavior. And if, again, if you're honest, you realize your behavior is not good enough and it's always going to crush you. It will always crush you if you're honest about the law of God. So does that mean we do nothing? No. But if uh, trying hard is not the answer, do we not try? I mean, you know, well, that's not it. The Bible still calls us to obey. It still calls us to pursue holiness. But it does not call us to do these things to earn God's love. It calls us to do these things in response to God's love. As uh, Scott Saul says, it's, the kindness, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not our repentance that leads God to be kind. If you reverse that, you no longer have Christianity. If you reverse that, if you believe that God is going to be gracious to you because of what you do, that is not Christianity. That is a whole nother religion. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not our repentance that causes God to be kind. My problem, your problem, if I can be so bold, is not that we lack discipline. Our problem is that we love the wrong things. All sin, all sin is not merely a behavioral problem. It's a love problem. All sin is ultimately a violation of the, of the greatest commandment that you're to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the reason we do not love God with all of our hearts is because we're not convinced that God loves us with all of his. So what do we do? What do we do? Do we just sit back, let go, let God, what? Well, no, there is something we can do. We can learn of his love. Learn of his love. You know, simply knowing what to do leaves you powerless However, there is a knowledge that leads to real change, and that's the knowledge of the love of God. Look again at verse 18. Uh, Notice what Paul prays for us, for his readers. 
He says, he prays that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So if we're going to live lives of beauty and of grace, we must be captivated by the beauty and grace of God. That means we must join Paul in prayer. What should I be praying for myself? What should I be praying for you? What should I be praying for my children? What what we should be praying is what Paul prays, that we would be captivated by the love of God. Nothing is wrong with praying and saying, God, help me to change. But if that's all you're praying, you're missing out on the power. What we need to be praying is, Lord, I... You know, I believe, help me with my unbelief, I believe that you love me. But I'm really struggling right now because I look at what I've done and I wouldn't love me if I were you. And, and yet I have to pray and I have to believe and say the gospel is true. Jesus did take away the penalty of my sin. Jesus has given me my righteousness. Lord, help me to believe this. Help me to comprehend the love of God. And it's interesting, he, he prays that we will be enabled to know the love of God that surpasses Knowledge. Know what surpasses knowledge. Kind of contradictory, isn't it? Here's what he's saying. He says, the love of God is so deep. It's like an ocean without a bottom. But you keep plumbing those depths. And the deeper you go, the more you're going to see it and be amazed by God's love. So we, we need to pray. Lord, help me see your love. And then secondly, we engage in those activities that help us to know the love of God. We're not passive. There's still work to do. Uh, if we're going to see our lives transformed by the Spirit. We have to labor to know grace. And so we, we read our Bible so that we can hear about God's love for us. We come to worship. We come to worship because we're going to sing about his love. You know, there are times, and frankly, often, I'll come to church on Sunday morning. I'm a pastor. Don't tell my people back home. Um, I, I come, and I do not feel like singing. I just don't feel it. And then the words are not what I'm feeling at the moment either. I'm distracted. Somebody said something to me. I'm just like, and so, so what do we do? And I think many Christians say, well, if I don't feel it, it'd be dishonest to sing. That's not true. That's not true. Sing by faith. Sing by what you believe to be true. Here's authentic Christianity. So we live by faith. And so we begin to sing these words and we begin to worship so that our hearts will catch up to our mouths. And we sing and we engage, and so we begin to realize God is worthy of our praise. And when we confess our sin and we see that he has forgiven us, and then we come to the Lord's table and we realize his body was given for us because he loves us. You know, I used to do all of those things, worship, prayer, Bible reading. I I did them for two reasons. One reason was I felt like I had to read my Bible and pray so that God would be pleased with me. And so I looked at Reading my Bible and praying and going to church is a way to earn God's favor. The other reason I did it, by the way, is I wanted to impress all my other Christian friends with how much I knew about my Bible, right? And, uh, and, and so we realized that's, that's, a, that's a misuse of the Bible. That's a misuse of worship. Instead, we need the Bible. We need to worship, but we need them so that we can hear about God's great love for us and remind ourselves of the truth. And here is where the Christian life is more like Thanksgiving dinner than a diet. The key to growth is not self-denial of itself, but it's coming and feasting on Christ, becoming full with his love. The more confident we are of Christ's love for us, the less appealing the things of this world will be. Christianity is not a call to deny your passions, 
Christianity is a call to feast on Christ and to find that he is the fullness. He is what your hearts are hungry for. He will satisfy your heart in ways that nothing else of this world can. And the more you're convinced of God's love for you, the more you will love him and the more you'll experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is the key. A number of years ago, there was a young woman in an adolescent rehab programs, uh, rehab program for addiction. And she'd been there for a, a few weeks, and, and the parents had not been able to come see her. And finally, they had this Saturday program where the parents were allowed to come and see their kids. The difference was the parents were in the section roped off in the back, and the kids in the program were down in the front. And the kids would come up, and they would share their stories uh, about where they'd been. And finally, it came this girl's time. She walked to the microphone, and just with tears and covered with just deep, deep shame, she confessed that she had been a prostitute. Her father had had enough. He came bursting through the ropes. He came down. He embraced her, and he said, when I see you, I don't see a prostitute. I see my daughter. She looked back at him, and she said, Daddy, I've forgotten the joy of being your little girl. Christian, many of us have forgotten the joy of being children of God. He loves you. He wouldn't give a son for you if he didn't love you. You are righteous, not because you're so good, but because Christ is so gracious. There's no condemnation in Christ. And so may we come to know more the love of God so that we can experience the power of God and therefore live as we are loved. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us for counting that love short, for thinking that somehow we had to add to it, thinking that somehow it was not enough. Lord, we confess that when we do these things, we're actually despising the cross. Forgive us, O Lord, for minimizing the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf. And so, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Confirm your love to us, even as we come to the table today. May we remember that you love us, and therefore may we live out of faith, believing that we are forgiven, believing that we are righteous, because you have given us your righteousness. And therefore, may we leave, leave here today walking in the power of the Spirit, so that we might live lives that honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.